We're in John 17. We are in the last portion of this wonderful prayer that our Savior prays for his church, for his people. Divided, as we've noted, into those three sections, we're in the final section of the three, verses 20 through 26. And as we finish our study over the coming weeks in this final section where Jesus prays for those who will believe in him because of the faithful teaching and the word that he gave to his disciples and sent them out into the world to proclaim the message of the gospel, we understand that what he's doing in these verses especially is praying for you And for me, if you are a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And last week, we learned that we are known by Jesus in the most intimate of ways. That he knows us. He formed us while we were in our mother's womb. He knew us before the foundation of the world. And here, with knowledge of who we are specifically and of our every need, he prays for us faithfully. And he continues to do so until we are brought safely home. It is an amazing thought, a wonderful and comforting thought to know that our Savior is, in fact, right this moment praying for us. And as we noted last week, he is praying three specific things that we will focus the remainder of our study on in this section In verses 20 through 23, that we would be united as one. In verse 24, that we would see the glory of Christ. And then in verses 25 and 26, that we would come to know the love of God in Jesus Christ. And so I know you've just been seated. This is a shorter introduction, but nonetheless, please stand once again as we hear God's word. And we give our attention to these verses again and to what they teach us. Beginning in verse 20, Jesus praying, I do not ask for these only, that is his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. 
Father, this is the word delivered by Jesus to his disciples and by them to a world in which we are part and have come to know and to hear and to understand. We pray your blessing by that same spirit who gave us life, that we might have the mind of Christ in these things and understand the depth of the unity that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray this with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you or I were to be a fly on the wall in the days of the early church, immediately after Pentecost, we would have witnessed a wonderful, marvelous work of God as recorded for us in Acts chapter 4 towards the end. It's not long after Pentecost, the coming down of the Spirit is promised by God in the Old Testament, promised by Jesus to his disciples in the New Testament. The fulfillment of everything that he has promised, the great promise that the Spirit of God would come and dwell within man. This is what we read at the end of Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that and no one and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as he had need. Those who believed because of the witness and testimony of the disciples are said here to be of one heart and one soul. It was a oneness that extended beyond just a description or an outward uh, appearance. It was a oneness that extended to caring even for the physical needs of God's people, so that... Luke records for us there was not a needy person among them. Each one was caring for the needs of the others, all giving generously, loving selflessly. Some would have said that heaven had come down to earth, and because of this, the world was turned upside down. The disciples who had heard Jesus' prayer in John 17, who were present there in that scene in Acts chapter 4, would have no doubt rejoiced as they saw the church and body of Christ living out the reality of what Jesus asked his father in that prayer, that they may all be one even as we are one. It was a beautiful, tremendously encouraging scene. But fast forward less than 25 years later, And we read these words of the Apostle Paul that you heard briefly earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? 
Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank my God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What happened in less than 25 years, and no doubt even before that? What happened to this church of Acts chapter 4 that dwelt together in unity, where everyone considered the needs of the others more important than themselves, where the fulfillment of Jesus' own prayer for his church was so clearly and visibly seen that they may be one even as we, you, Father, and Son, are one. How do we understand what happened in such a short time? Well, I think the first thing we need to do, and we're going to do it this morning, is to look at and examine Jesus' own words in this prayer in John 17 to understand exactly what it is that he is asking of his Father. And to do that, I want to examine it under three different headings, these verses 20 through 23, in order to help us understand what kind of unity, what unity Jesus is praying for First of all, it is a unity that is mystical and spiritual. Secondly, it is a unity grounded in the truth, the word given to them. And thirdly, it is a unity that is established by God and maintained by his people. The first point then, it is a unity that is mystical and spiritual. Now, these are fancy words, and sometimes they can be disturbing words as we describe things in this way, but I think they are accurate words, and I think they are very helpful for us to understand what kind of unity we're talking about when we speak of the unity for which Jesus prays. We need only to look at the verses themselves, and you begin to see that Jesus is grounding this unity in the relationship that he has with his father. Notice again in these verses that they may all, verse 2, be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The glory, verse 22, that you have given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we, Father and Son, are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. This is language of a spiritual nature, a mystical nature, if you will. Martin Lloyd-Jones very helpfully says in his wonderful book, The Assurance of Our Salvation, which is his study of John 17, highly recommend it. That there are only in the Bible four types of unity that are dealt with throughout the Bible. The first, of course, is the unity of the three persons of the Trinity. We've talked about that in our study thus far, especially in the first section, verses 1 through 5. That there is a unity of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where it is one God eternally existing in three distinct persons. 
And yet there's no confusion among those persons. There's no mixing of those persons. And yet there is one perfect will. We can't say that the Father has a particular will and that the Son has a different will. But the Son and the Spirit and the Father all possess one will as one God, yet three distinct persons. It is a mystery. Every writer, every commentator, everyone who has ever studied this great theme acknowledges at the outset it is a mystery beyond our ability to understand. But it reflects a unity and a perfection of unity that is very important for us to understand. Secondly, there is the unity of the two natures of Jesus as well. The same thing, no confusion of these two natures existing together now in one person. When the eternal Son of God came in the fullness of time and took on our humanity, he remains in that now glorified humanity. Those two natures being joined together in one person, again without confusion, again without crossing over, but distinct and yet those two natures existing in perfect unity in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's a, a mystery for our minds to grasp and understand, but it reflects again the perfection of the unity that Jesus highlights here. The third kind of unity, Lloyd-Jones rightly says, is described in the scriptures is the unity of each believer individually with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spoke of this in many places as you read through the scriptures. Christ in you, he said to the Colossian church, the hope of glory. Christ dwelling in us, we know by his Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 2, the Lord or the Apostle Paul speaks of his life as being one lived out, but it's not I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. This expression of the unity of the believer with Jesus, a perfect display of the unity that Jesus is praying for here. And then finally, the fourth kind, Lloyd-Jones says rightly in Scripture that's described is the unity of Christians with other Christians. And here's the point. When Jesus prays for the unity of the body, that they may be one, he relates it all to these other three images that we find in the scriptures. Our unity as Christians is compared to these other three descriptions of unity within the Bible. And therefore, because that is mysterious, mystical, spiritual, it's important that we understand what exactly it is he's saying when he talks about our unity together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. There is something about it that is mystical. Merriam-Webster, more modern, says this, having a spiritual meaning or reality that is nearly neither apparent to the senses nor obvious to the intelligence. That's what mystical means. Noah Webster in 1828, sacredly obscure or secret, remote, distant from human comprehension. The point is this, we can't 
begin to quantify it. We can't begin to fully grasp or understand what it is for a believer in Jesus Christ to be so united with another believer in Jesus Christ because there's something otherworldly about it, supernatural about it. But it is more real, as we so often said, than most of the things, all of the things we see with our eyes and experience with our senses. It's beyond our comprehension, but it's real and it's true. And all of us know it. All of us have experienced this at one point in our lives or another. It's not only mystical, it is a spiritual union which means very simply that it is brought about by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. And the teaching ministry that Jesus speaks about in John 14 through 16 about the Spirit, about sending the Spirit to dwell within us, about it being better for his disciples that Jesus departs so that the Spirit could come, is all a picture of this unity. We are a people indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ lives within us. This is the only unity that the New Testament knows about, the only unity in which it is at all interested. And it is the unity, this mystical, spiritual unity, but no less real, more real, than anything the world can offer mystical, spiritual. That's the unity for which Jesus prays because he compares it to the unity of the triune God, the unity of his own person being one person, two distinct natures, the unity of his own union with his own people. All of that being mystical and spiritual speaks to the nature of the unity for which he prays. What does that mean then? It means it's not merely an ecumenical movement or unity. It is not about organizations. It is not about having too many denominations. It's not about those things at all. The Bible has nothing to say about denominations or movements that seek to bring together denominations into one massive church with the expectation that perhaps if the world would just see us all lay down our differences and come together, we'll express that unity and the world will believe in Jesus. That is not the unity that Jesus has in mind. It is a mystical and spiritual unity. I remember years ago, and perhaps some of you who are old enough remember when the movement to bring evangelicals and Catholics together was very prominent. It uh, was on the front page of religious news as they met over several years and on different occasions, two separate times, to work through the differences between evangelicals and Catholics so that we might have a demonstrated organizational unity as the Church of Jesus Christ. What was aimed at there was a diminishing of that which distinguishes us from one another. 
Brothers and sisters, as we sit here this morning, I know as we read through the Heidelberg Catechism, there are some people who would say, listen, pastor, you ought not to read a statement like you read this morning about the papal mass in public. It could be offensive to those who may come and visit your church who are Catholic. To call their mass an an act of idolatry is, is offensive. It is offensive. But the point is that we differ with those who are part of the Roman Catholic Church. And and we cannot, for the sake of having an outward organizational unity, simply dismiss the differences, differences which are clear and fundamental to who we are as Christians. The call to unity, even among those who do not believe the gospel, is a movement that is... Ages old, it's, it's over a hundred years old when, when people began to push for unity, visible unity, even among those who do not believe the gospel. That denies what Jesus is praying for. It's not what Jesus is praying for. Early in my ministry here in New Jersey, as we were called back in 2001, we were involved, many of us, as leaders within our churches in this community to to meet with those who were even of different faiths. And every year we had to reiterate again and again that when you talk about meeting and talking about uh, needs within your community, that's fine. But when you continue to push for a gathering of all of these disparate groups into one to offer our worship to God that they believed was the same God, We had to say over and over again, no, we do not have a unity. This mystical and spiritual unity that Jesus speaks of is not present with those who do not believe the gospel. And that leads me to my second point then. It is a unity that is mystical and spiritual reflected in those images that Jesus gives, the statements of the unity of the Godhead. It is also, secondly, a unity that is grounded in the truth, grounded in the truth of the gospel. The only way for true biblical unity for which Jesus prays, and you remember Acts chapter 4, as they were hearing the disciples, the apostles, proclaiming the truth of Christ now resurrected from the dead, That's what centered them in that moment of beautiful unity. They were submitting themselves to the truth of God as preached and proclaimed by the disciples. The word given to them by Jesus and by them to the people. It's the word, it's the truth of God by which we are sanctified is what grounds us in the truth. You see that in the context, right? It's right after verses 17 through 19. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I, he says, sanctified myself. I consecrated myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. The unity of the Bible between believers is a unity among those who are being sanctified by the truth of God as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are countless examples of this, how this was challenged and threatened over the course of history. Perhaps one of the 
clearest examples comes from the early 20th century as the church coming into the modern age and wrestling with the impact of that age upon the church began to question whether or not, and I speak here primarily of the Presbyterian church, especially in the north, whether or not our commitment to our standards, the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, for instance, was too strict so as to leave out those who don't fully embrace those truths. And so in the early 20th century, New York Presbytery ordained two graduates of Union Seminary who would not affirm the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ. Several Presbyteries complained against that action, and then a battle began to happen within the church in the north, the PCUSA, and in the General Assembly, in the meetings of the church, this challenge was brought forth. It went on to claim that the doctrines plainly taught in the church's constitution, the Westminster Standards, such as the virgin birth, the atoning sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, were mere theories and not facts that were taught in the Bible, and therefore they were not binding upon Presbyterian ministers. By 1924, when more than 1,200 ministers signed the Auburn Affirmation, which is what this said, that these things were not true, they were mere theories, there was a clear controversy facing the church. That was met head-on by many famous men at the time, those especially of old Princeton Seminary, including J. Gretchen Machen, emerged as one of the great defenders of orthodoxy before his death. And as he defended that in his wonderful book, Christianity and Liberalism, he spoke about how dangerous the times were in which he was living. It was dividing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was threatening the unity of the body because the unity of the body is rooted and grounded in the truth revealed to to them by God. And he spoke of it this way. In the present conflict, he wrote briefly, the great redemptive religion, which has always known, which has always been known as Christianity, is battling against a totally diverse type of religious belief, which is only more destructive of the Christian faith because it makes use of traditional Christian terminology. Now, that point that he makes is very important because all through the church, All through the years of the church, the way the battle is often fought, especially by those who would seek to undermine the truth of the gospel, is to use the same language, but to make it say something different. So that the language outwardly would appear to be the same, but what is actually revealed is that there is a departure from this spiritual, mystical union grounded and rooted in the truth. It's a deception of the one who appears as an angel of light, but is the father of lies. In that period, you may remember that there were five fundamentals that were put forward. Biblical inerrancy, that it is the word of God without error. The divine nature of Jesus Christ, that he is both God and man. The necessity of the virgin birth of Jesus. The bodily resurrection of Jesus and the bodily return of Jesus when he comes again. 
All of this is a picture of what happens when the church becomes divided. What happened in Corinth is no mystery. False teachers entered into the church. They began to teach false doctrine and teaching, undermining the ground upon which our unity is built. And suddenly there were divisions within the church. It is the story down through the ages of the church. This unity comes about by the truth of God's word through the working and power of the Holy Spirit. It is what we believe that is important What we believe, what we say we believe, our doctrines is what is most important because that's the ground of our unity in Jesus Christ. It is the word he gave to his disciples. It is the word that the disciples gave to the people who would come to believe. And they believe in that word as it points us to Christ. Some will cry in our day, as they often do, But, Pastor, doesn't doctrine divide necessarily? No, doctrine unites. Yes, there are times when doctrine divides, and it's necessary. This doctrine, this faith, as Jude calls it, once delivered unto all the saints, is the ground of our unity and the ground upon which Jesus here in these verses is speaking. Our oneness as a body and as a church with the larger church of Jesus Christ is rooted in these truths. Perhaps you heard this week, uh, it's become famous, maybe viral as the term goes, a very famous news person in our culture today had a little rant on television about what he believes. It was a stunning thing, maybe you heard it live, but this is what he said. He said, let me just say this, and and by the way, this is all rooted in the recent decision of the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Uh, In those uh, issues, those debates, you know what the ruling was. It returned the discussion of abortion to individual states rather than as a federal statute. There are many who are in just livid over that and are fighting for abortion as a national policy. And this was his rant. Let me just say, he says, as a Southern Baptist, I grew up reading the Bible, maybe a backslidden Baptist, but I still know the Bible. Jesus never once talked about abortion, never once. And it was happening back in ancient times. It was happening during his time. Never once mentioned it. For people perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ down to one issue, well, that's heresy, he said. Go if you don't believe me. If that makes you angry, why don't you do something you haven't done in a long time? Open your Bible. Open the New Testament. Read the red letters. And you won't see it there. This man professes to be a Christian. Do you have unity with him? I don't. There is no unity, mystical, spiritual, rooted, grounded in the truth with this man. Why? Because it's a denial of the word of God, revealed by God. We don't use red letters only when we're talking about the truth of God. Jesus proclaimed the truth from the beginning of the Bible till the end. And when he did that, it is ours to believe it. 
to live it by his grace. We cannot be unified with such people who, though they proclaim outwardly to be followers of Christ and claim that they believe the gospel of Christ, by their own words, they've denied it. Because our unity is not merely outward. It's not organizational. It's mystical, spiritual, rooted and grounded in the truth. And thirdly, it is a unity wrought by God and maintained by his people. What do I mean by that? Wrought by God, it wrought is an old word. It means worked by God. It means brought about by God. It is wrought by him. When Jesus speaks, he is referencing a unity that God actually has already wrought in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is much like sanctification. We have a definitive view of sanctification. We are fully sanctified in Jesus right now. No more holy now before his presence than we will ever be because of our union with Christ. It's definitive. It's done. But there's a progressive nature as well. It's ongoing. We wrestle and fight against sin. This, in, this war that just continues to go on between the flesh and the spirit. In the same way, our unity is that way. It is already a fact that you and I, if we are in Christ, are united together as the Father and Son are. That's an amazing thought. That you and I are as closely united, definitively, together in Jesus, just like the Father and Jesus are. And so you go through the, Old, or the New Testament. You look at the words, the images that Jesus gives us and that Paul gives us about this unity of this church. What do you have? You have words like a body. Can you divide the body? Well, well, you can, I suppose. But, but the body is one, isn't it? Made up of one in, many members, joined together in one. It is one body over which Jesus Christ is head. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Wonderful passage to read. We are called a family of God, unified by a common birth, a common bond, a common life lived out in Jesus Christ. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit where he indwells each one individually and corporately, each of us being a brick in one temple, one building built by God to display his glory. That unity is already wrought by God. It's already true of us. The focus of Jesus' prayers that God would maintain, give grace that we might maintain, protect, guard the unity that he himself has brought about by his own grace. And so it's a unity not only wrought by God, but maintained by his people. Think of all the commands of the Bible, all of them. And they all have something to do with this. Our selfishness as we live that out is a threat to our unity. And so Paul calls us to a selfless mind in Philippians 2, to have the mind of Christ who thought not of himself, but of those he came to save. All of those commandments to love one another, to serve one another, they're all designed to, that we might as his people maintain and continue to display as Acts 4 displayed, the beautiful unity of the people of God in this one glorious body. Thomas Manton said something that I think is very helpful, maybe by way more of application. 
This unity is rooted in our own fellowship individually and corporately with the Father. And Manton said this, the unity of the saints together, our unity together, brothers and sisters, depends upon our individual communion with God when we are alone. That is so true. Each of us, by the Spirit of God, led into fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with his Spirit, serves the purpose of allowing us to maintain and display that unity for which Jesus prays. We are to be one, Jesus says, even as we already are one by the Holy Spirit. Unity is wrought by the Spirit of God. We are never commanded to create it. We're never commanded to manufacture it. We cannot do the work of his Spirit. Only he can do it, and he has done it for each one of us who are in Christ Jesus. But we are called to see it as the highest, most important thing we do when we live in this world The chief and primary aim of our lives is that we are to guard it, preserve it. It's something that we must hold fast to. And that is what the Bible teaches us. And that is what Jesus prays for. So it's a unity as we close that is mystical. It is spiritual. It's beyond our ability to fully comprehend But everyone knows in this room who has the spirit of Christ within them, everyone knows what it is because you've experienced it as you connect automatically with Christians from all over the world, as you interact with fellow believers, wherever you meet them, there is an immediate sense that there is something that joins you together, that already you have known each other even as you are known Have you come this morning to know this work of the Spirit in your life, this connection that is yours by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, this union that is mystical and spiritual? It is also a unity, as we've seen, grounded in the truth. Have you come to understand and to give yourself to the study of God's word to understand the importance of what it is we believe, to remember, as we said in our study of verses 17 through 19, that there is no second way for us to grow in the Christian life, but it is only as we are sanctified by the word of God. And that sanctification is what enables us to display the unity for which Jesus prays. And it is a unity that we can give thanks to God that he has already wrought and done within us. But are we giving ourselves to maintaining it as true believers? The final vow that we take as those who join the local church or the PCA in general is, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church? And do you promise to study its purity and its peace? You see that link there, purity and peace. If there's a question among the five that we ask, that's the one people have the most questions about. I know what it means to submit myself to the discipline of the church, to the elders God has placed over me, but I don't know what it means to study the purity and the peace 
of God. Well, it's this unity is what it means. That the purity of doctrine, which is the ground of our unity, the peace, which is the outward display of our unity, that we will submit ourselves to that government and discipline, and we will seek to study faithfully, to give ourselves to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so that's where we come as we end. We come to that great passage in the book of Ephesians that we said in our response this morning as we responded to God's kindness in the forgiveness of our sins. We quoted and prayed together those words from Ephesians chapter 4. The church at Ephesus, as we're studying even on Wednesday nights in 1 John, was well known to John, of course. It's where he lived in his later age. It is where most believe that he died at a very old age, the only apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to die a natural death. It is said by Jerome in his commentary on Galatians that this blessed John the Evangelist, who lived in Ephesus during his latter years, that when he would come to the church, he would often desire to admonish and encourage them. His disciples could barely carry him to the church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During those gatherings, as the church would be gathered, they would look forward to hearing from him, and he would often speak. And they would carry him up, and they would place him before the church, and he would simply say this, Little children, love one another. Love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, Teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied with a line worthy of John, Because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is more than sufficient. In that same church, Paul would write these words. He would say, I, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with all patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's the same idea for which Jesus prays. ESV has eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. New American Standard, being diligent to preserve NIV, make every effort to keep the New King James endeavoring to keep. It implies a diligence, which means that there's an importance associated with what he says here. Unity is important, brothers and sisters. In fact, in Jesus' mind, it is of the utmost importance. Because he says it's because it's by this that the world will know. The world will know that God sent Jesus. Our unity, one writer says, manifests that we are not merely men, but that God has done something to us in Christ, that we are what we are because of the Son of God and because he has come into the world and has borne our sins and given us a new birth, a new life, and has sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. 
This is what our unity shows the world and what a privilege it is to display that unity as God gives us grace, mystical, spiritual, rooted and grounded in the truth of God that we might know him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have already wrought within us by your spirit and among us a unity that transcends our senses and our ability even to understand it. For it is part of that great mystery of the unity of the Godhead and the unity of the two natures in one person in Christ and the incredible unity of each of us as believers with our Savior. Father, this is the unity Jesus prayed for. This is the unity that you have wrought among us. Grant us every grace that we might maintain it eagerly with diligence and with faithfulness, we pray. And we ask it with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.